We're back. It's another week of taking notes with Dr. John Carroll. And it's a crazy week in that I had already settled on this week's topic of global education when I was thinking of a proper way to connect with our special guest this week. I always try to make sure that no matter the walk of life of our guest, that it still has a tie to education. And our guest this week has such a unique background in global education makes sense. And then I wake up on Saturday to the news, the horrible news, like everyone else, that there's been an attack, a terrorist attack on the people of Israel by Hamas, a terror, terrorist organization and hostages have been taken and all this happening on a holiday weekend in the Jewish community. So immediately it was something that I knew was very serious and much the same way that I had friends of all backgrounds and persuasions that reached out to me to check on my, my mental well-being, my emotional state as we sat in COVID and watched the murders of Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, it immediately crossed my mind to do the same. And so that's what I wanted to open with this week was that in the midst of a global, global moment, much like particularly George Floyd became, I just think it's important given how politically radioactive the discussion around Israel and Palestine is, I don't think it can be lost that in this moment, in this very moment, what is key is that there's been an attack on Israeli people who were just trying to live. They did not ask to be taken hostage in Gaza. They did not ask to be dragged through the streets and tortured and ultimately killed. They did not ask to be used as human shields so that Israel has to temper whatever response there may be. And so for me, what becomes important is to not just speak out of turn, but in the same way in the black community, we talk about not only just allyship, but co-conspiratorship. When we have those conversations, when it's issues that pertain to the black community, we want our friends and allies to listen for understanding first and not try to be out in front leading the way. And so that is what I hope I can encourage people to do because that's certainly what my position is, to just check in on my people. Immediately, again, watching the news on Saturday, people from all walks of my life came to mind um, and, and I wanted to check in on them to make sure they were safe. And that's, you know, friends all the way from elementary school to, you know, athletes that I have coached, you know, some who have even represented Israel. Um, and of course, members, you know, of my school uh, community, um, particularly colleagues. I came to find out that one in particular was, had people, you know, who were in, in bomb shelters 
And so my goal before I start talking about anything is just to listen and just offer the opportunity to be there. And I would encourage people to do the same. There'll be plenty of time to talk about all of the politics and what should we do. But in this moment, I hope that we can all just think about the humanity and think about those who are immediately impacted by this terrorist attack. We're going to come back in a second and get back to our topic this week, which is global education. So this global situation, most notably this week with Israel facing attack, is one of those real-life reminders to me of why global education is important. And it's so important to me that when I talk to students about college, for example, I tell every single one of them, if you get an opportunity to travel abroad, do so. Because I think here in America, we get a very specific type of education and understanding about the world around us. And part of that is so that we have an educated citizenry that wants to go into the workforce so that the American machine keeps running. But the drawback of that is we limit our desire to see what else is out in the world. And we certainly become judgmental about the ways that other people live their lives in a way that we might not if we actually went abroad and went to these places. One of the things that I most enjoy about my wife's family is that they're what I call international mobile. So, you know, whether it's her aunties, whether it's her cousins, it never is a situation where they feel like they are landlocked to the United States to live their lives. You know, it doesn't matter if the job is London, it doesn't matter if the job is in the Emirates, Turkey, London, France, wherever the major metropolitan area may be, they're comfortable going to that place. And it's because of the very informed national identity they have, A and B, just the way that they have largely been, including my wife, educated in a global fashion. And when I say global, there's that piece where they understand they're citizens of the world, that the way one country moves impacts others. And I don't know that we necessarily get that just being educated in America. So I tell students, please travel abroad so that you have that opportunity to do a couple things. One, it makes the places that you study all through high school and in college very real. You are able to put those places in context. Two, you start to understand the American existence from a global perspective. And again, it might change the way you see how things go in America, why we do things in America, and if you really like the things that we do in America. And then three, and probably the most pragmatic, when you go abroad, you have the opportunity to expand your human network, which therefore expands your opportunity to make a way for yourself in this world. If you're born in America, you are largely taught that 
you know, this is the place where you have the best opportunity to be successful. And that's just simply not the case. You go abroad, you widen your network, you create more opportunities for yourselves. There's no company, no large company in this country that isn't trying to expand its reach globally, whether it is straight business, finance, entertainment, sports, hospitality, it doesn't matter. They all look to be global. So you do yourself a favor if you take some time when you are young and don't have a family to go and travel the world. And I say don't have a family just because it makes it that much easier to pick up and go. When you start to have a family and now have roots and are trying to take care of children, that mobility becomes a lot more difficult. It takes a lot more planning. So going abroad, studying abroad is something that I highly recommend and something that surprisingly doesn't happen as much as it should for United States students, given how prevalent it is for international students. So just some real quick numbers uh, before we take a break. In 2021, there was a survey done, got this off of a, uh, from an article on evolution.com. And so... 2021, 14,000 American students studying abroad. That's in contrast to over close to a million international students here in America. Now, again, part of that is because of COVID and we had a, you know, basically lockdown in where we were looking to travel. Certainly they want to be traveling to other countries for a long period of time. But even at its height, again, the number of international students, 948, thousand in 2021 the high for american students studying abroad 350k in 2018 2019 so just a third over just over a third in comparison to international students studying here so it's just not something that's prevalent and i think again that's something that needs to change because i think ultimately for the generations that become leaders if you were have have a greater percentage studying abroad they would come back and come into leadership with a much broader worldview and perspective and might be better in their diplomacy efforts. An interesting final bit before we take a break. The profile, the most likely kinds of students to go abroad. More often than not, you're going in the summertime. So you don't see a whole lot of students taking the time to take a whole semester. Most do it in the summer at about a 40% clip. Most do it when they're upperclassmen in college. No surprise there. Freshman and sophomore year, you're really trying to settle yourself into this new experience, get your prereq classes out of the way. More often than not, female. And more often than not, the destination is Europe. So again, I would highly suggest that for communities of color where opportunities exist and more and more colleges and more and more gap year programs are developing to take people abroad, or really look into how you would do that for the benefits that I talked about earlier. So that is my spiel on global education. We'll take a break and then I'll have my special guest share her insights on why Studying abroad is so valuable. We'll be right back.
Okay, we are here in the office. Special visitor today. Didn't have to travel far from parts unknown in the Carroll compound. I'm happy to welcome into the office for taking notes with Dr. John Carroll, the purveyor, the boss, the captain of the ship in the All-American universe. That would be All-American and All-American Homecoming, not to mention her new show, Found, which she created, which debuted on NBC to wonderful numbers. The one, the only, Nkechi Okoro Carol, a.k.a. NK, a.k.a. the franchise of the Carol family. Welcome, my dear. <laughs> Hi, honey. Um, thank you for quite that intro. I feel like I should take you with me everywhere I go. Well, it's self-serving. One, it is you know easy because you are, of course, my wife. Two, it serves as a blueprint for all those who would interview you in the future. So let's get right to it because we are on a tight timetable, both of us. And so we want to make this as efficient yet enjoyable as possible. The first question, since our topic is global education this week, appropriate given all that's going on in the world, you are a prime guest for this because of your global perspective and global experience as you matriculated through school. So the first question is, what was the value add to going to school abroad as opposed to solely being educated here in the United States? What did that do for your worldview? Um, you know, at the time, it didn't seem uh, unusual to me because it's what we all did. We grew up in West Africa. I was in the Cote d'Ivoire. My siblings and I were in the Cote d'Ivoire. Um, we had cousins in Nigeria. Um, and everyone surrounding us, our family, our friends, just everyone in that whole area, it was kind of the thing you did was you reached a certain age, usually around our equivalent of seventh grade, and you went to school abroad. You either came back to school in the U.S. or you went to boarding school in England, um, boarding school in Malta, uh, all sorts of options. And so at the time, my sister wanted to go to um, this particular school in Oxford, England, and, you know, I was 12, 11. And so I was just like, yeah, okay, I'll go. Yeah, wherever she goes, we go. So all three of us, three girls, um, all went to boarding school in Oxford. And in hindsight, I believe was one of the best things that ever happened to me. Um, in any given year, before I had time to sort of fear the unknown, in any given year, I was on three separate continents, right? Because I was living in the Cote d'Ivoire, so I was on Af in Africa. I was going to boarding school in Oxford. Um, and so I was in Europe. And then uh, we would always come back to the States because we had our place in New York. So we would always come back to the States, whether it's, it was for Christmas or for part of summer. And so, yeah, I grew up thinking that was normal. And so being very comfortable learning other languages at a young age, being very comfortable being dropped in other cultures um, and finding my place within that, even if I didn't see people who looked exactly like me, which was the case in my boarding school in England, there were, I think I could count on one hand how many black students there were. Um, but it didn't phase me because I thought that was normal. It actually wasn't until I got back to the States for college um, and uh, got to UPenn and realized how people were reacting to what my upbringing was, was the first time it sort of clued into me like, oh, this isn't what 
as though it's what everyone I knew did because it is very prevalent in our community, especially in um, Nigerian communities, West African communities. It wasn't just us. Everyone did it. The Ghanaians did it. Everyone did it. Um, it was not prevalent here in the U.S. and certainly not in the U.S. Black community. Um, but it raised me to be a global citizen where now I feel comfortable Drop me in any country. If I don't know the language, I will eventually learn it. I speak three languages. Four. Three? Three-ish. <laughs> I used to be fluent in German and Italian, but I don't use them anymore. So, you know, we're kind of stuck with uh, French, English. Um, but still ahead of the curve either way. I want my German and Italian back. Um, our youngest, Elisha, says he wants to learn Italian, so we're going to start doing that in the evenings um, and see how that goes, see if I can bring my Italian back. But it raised me to feel like I could live anywhere. So at any point in time, I'm just as comfortable raising our kids in Europe as I am raising them back home. If it's not in Nigeria or if it's not in Cote d'Ivoire, I'm comfortable raising them in, in Ghana, comfortable raising them in Kenya. Um, we've talked about New Zealand, Australia. It doesn't... Um, there's no fear associated with sort of exploring the world because to me, the world is home because that's how I was raised versus feeling like the U.S. is my, the boundaries of my home and everywhere else is a foreign country. I was raised to believe the globe was my home. Um, and honestly, I think it has shaped every aspect of my being. And so given that, I'm always curious, you hear people talk about it um, in their writing, I think most notably about uh, Chimamanda Adichie talking about, you know, understanding notions of race in America. So I'm curious, given your um, experience and having that global citizen perspective, how did you come to make sense of race in America and, and internalize, you know, what race means, particularly for Black women? Uh, and now you have two Black sons. How did that process go for you, given that you had such a global upbringing? Um, you know, it's interesting. I don't actually think the idea of, even though I was always very aware that I was usually in the minority when I was in the UK or when I came to the States, but because, I guess because my foundational years were in Nigeria and the Cote d'Ivoire where we were the majority, you know, teachers looked like me, presidents looked like me, bankers looked like me. You know, the janitorial staff looked like me. It was, it all looked like me. So I was raised to believe and saw it in evidence in the people around me that you could be absolutely anything you wanted to be, any profession you wanted to be. And I saw that. I saw it with my own eyes. And so truthfully, by the time I came to the States and understood that, oh, there are limitations put on people based on race and this countries um i was always aware of this country's history with slavery and quite frankly what we still all of the things we still struggle with now but when i came back to the states as you know a college student and became very aware of of it not being just a history where we were still sort of we knocked down the wall we were still tripping over the bricks but understanding that oh no the wall's still there it might look different Maybe it's a little shorter. Maybe it's a little, it's got holes in the wall, but the wall was definitely still there. Um, the, I felt it didn't have the same effect on me because I'd been raised to believe that I was 
brilliant and uh, intelligent and capable of anything and saw that in the people that surrounded me. And so it was kind of like, oh, this isn't my problem. This is America's problem. I'm going to keep doing me, you know? And so I don't really think I truly, truly internalized it and processed it and what it means and the generational effect it has until I had children until I started raising two black boys specifically in this country, which was very different from how I was raised. And the reality of that and the fear, genuine fear of, I just need my sons to make it home at night, completely changed my perspective on it. And quite frankly, we semi-joke <laughs> semi about it, but quite frankly, it's had me several times thinking, why am I raising Why am I playing? It feels that simply because of their race that we play Russian roulette with their lives because this country's history with slave week, this country's history of um, racism and discrimination and specifically towards our black boys and our black men, it, it is literally something that keeps me up at night that I never thought of or factored in where I was concerned because my foundational years weren't in this country. And so that was not at the forefront of everything I was being taught. It was not at the forefront of every interaction I had with people. It wasn't the, I walk into, you know, a, a library or a supermarket or, and I'm looked at as if I don't belong or walk into an affluent neighborhood. There was none of that growing up. I, you know, again, everyone in the Cote d'Ivoire looked like me, everyone in Nigeria you know, looks like, and when I say look like me, obviously variations of black. Um, but yeah, it was, it was having kids. So it was Isaiah 16 and a half. It was truly 16 and 16 and a half years ago. And not that I wasn't aware of it prior to that, because clearly this country um, just is the gift that keeps on giving. But it hit me in a very different way when it was my child. And I was seeing it from such a young age, the institutionalized, the systemic racism um, that he was experiencing, even if he didn't recognize it as that, simply because of the color of his skin. And perhaps being in the hundred and whatever percentile of, of height when, you know, well, right, of his upbringing. Right, well, you know, part of the um, harmful stereotype is that of the, you know, aggressive black male, right? So that was going to be a label that was put on him anyway for being a black male. But then you add one that's, you know, was 6'6 six, six at birth. And, <laughs> just, you know, there's just, it's that moment of I realized, oh, I am going to have to protect my boys with my entire being and in my entire life in order for them to experience just the kind of joy that people take for granted, that other communities um, are able to take for granted. I hadn't realized, oh, I'm going to have to fight harder to have that feel like the norm to them, that they're allowed to experience Black boy joy, that they're allowed to do the things that other kids do. You know, we talked about this all the time. We had a hard and fast toy gun rule in this house, and that meant even the Nerf guns. I don't care if it was bright yellow and had the orange, and it was so clearly... There was a no toy gun rule. And having to have that conversation with Isaiah when he was five and six and didn't understand why he'd have to return those gifts, you know, to exchange it for something else at the store or why. And then seeing 
the moment the Tamir Rice shooting happened, murder happened. And we'll not forget that day in our household. Never. Exactly. His teacher brought it up at school. We sat him down. We're trying to protect the innocence that was left, but also have a conversation with him at such a young age. And the moment he said to us, I get now why you have a no toy gun policy. Part of me was glad he got it and wouldn't argue about it anymore. But also piece of my heart broke that day because it was the realization of at an age that was way too young for him, he now understood that because of his race, there were little things that he wasn't going to be able to take for granted and just do that some of his friends could. And that yeah, is a piece of reality of raising piece people. of innocence was lost in that exactly in that very moment. Let's turn back a little bit more positive after that exploration again, because I do want to continue to you know take advantage of your experience to think about global education and encourage you know, all communities to take advantage of it. You, unlike your husband, was smart enough to study abroad in undergrad, which I think is a perfect time to take such adventures. Mm. Talk about what it is to study abroad and where would you recommend folks go, particularly, you know, folks of color, um, to experience, you know, what it is to immerse themselves in one culture, in a culture that will appreciate you for who you are, um, you know, and, and be free of some of these notions of institutional racism. Everybody has them, but there are certainly places that don't, you know, it doesn't reflect in the same way for black people. You know, because I went to a boarding school for the equivalent of seventh through 12th grade, the idea of studying abroad wasn't even studying abroad to me. Again, it's part mm. of that global feeling. So it was just, you know, when I, when I was in boarding school, um, our biology trip was to Wales. Because we were just in Oxford. So, of course, you go to Wales or, you know, our French class trip wasn't to, you know, a French restaurant. It was like, okay, we're going to hop the ferry and go over to France for the day. And so the idea of doing a study abroad program in college is I get to go home. I get to go experience more of the globe under my educational, my university's educational banner. And so it was a no brainer to me. Like there was no version of me not doing it because it was just an extension of what I'd always been doing. Um, and also I did, instead of a, just to give sort of the context and the background, instead of a traditional sort of high school diploma, I did the International Baccalaureate, which at the time was very prevalent in Europe, but hadn't quite taken off here in the U.S. And so that too also pushed for a more global outlook. I was at a, the school where I did my International Baccalaureate was maybe the most international setting in Oxford that I'd ever been because I switched school sort of after my GCSEs and the uh, St. Clair's was the name of the um, international school I went to to do the IB and you know my roommate next door was Italian the other roommate was South African the girl downstairs was from the U.S. the other girl was from Somalia like it was the most international group of kids and educators and everything when I was doing the IB, like it was truthfully two of the best years of my life. So again, when I got to college and it was, oh, you get to take out a semester or a summer and study abroad. Is that something you'd be interested in? Right. Like, of course, it felt like going home again. So um, I did my study abroad program in France because uh, Central France is one of my favorite, favorite places on earth. Maybe I'd lived there in a former life. I don't know. But there's something about the calm of 
the Loire Valley and the old castles and the gardens and um, I'm 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 not going to even mention the warm pastries, but there's something about central, the central part of France, and specifically the Loire Valley, that is always called to my heart. And so when I realized I could do a study abroad program there, it was a no-brainer. So I ended up going for, I think it was either a six or eight-week program during the summer between my sophomore and junior year, which really ended up being between my sophomore and senior year because I graduated a year early. Um, and so it is something I would absolutely recommend everyone do. Hands down, everyone. I think it's really important that we recognize we are part of a global community. Um, I, I struggle with nowadays, it feels like we are so siloed as communities, right? No one's talking to their neighbor anymore. No one is having that communal water cooler moment where they talk about what they saw on growing pains last night or a different world last night or, you know, who's the boss or I'm so dating myself with these references, but you get my point. Those were the days in TV cheers where, you know, 25 million people were watching the same show that same night. You go to work. You actually have no idea what your coworkers' political leanings are. You're all sitting there talking about, you know, did you see the kiss on Cheers finally? And it was a community builder. And so now you're relating to this person on a human to human basis and not necessarily about all their other beliefs. And it allows for the exchange of beliefs. It allows for empathy. It allows for loving your neighbor. I feel like that is gone. Um, domestically for sure and even more so on a global level because we are all hunkering down into sort of our countries our beliefs there's a new sh new stream for whatever you believe in there is there's no sharing of anything and and um i believe that one of the ways we could start to combat that again is taking advantage of study abroad programs it is taking advantage of while you're at an institution that will pay for it, that will cover it, that gives you the structure you need to go explore somewhere else and not just you hopping on a plane by yourself and hoping you'll be okay. Take advantage of it. Become so comfortable that the world is your oyster. You know, John, you and I talk about this. Like, I love the fact that my cousins, my siblings, I, it, it, there can be a moment where it's like, you know what? I've been in New York for three years don't have a family, don't have anything. I just want to experience something different. I'm going to ask Citigroup if they can transfer me to the Dubai office. And now I'm living in Dubai for two years. And that is just normal. And then Berlin. And then, you know, my sister just moved to Berlin on a drop of a hat because she's a writer and she can write anywhere and felt a real kinship with Berlin when she visited for work a few times. And why not? That kind of global acceptance of we're all part of one global community, one global race, I think is what is going to mend us as a human race. And so I know I believe in unicorns and rainbows and all the optimistic things that I truly believe we can get there, but this is one of the ways I think we do it. And it is taking advantage of getting to know each other on a real level through things like study abroad programs. Now, as to the second part of your question in terms of where I send people, first of all, this is going to date me and age me completely, but when I did my study program was a couple decades ago, and I felt like the world was a slightly different place. So the truth is, it depends on the person. It depends on your personality type, and it depends on what you're looking for. And that's the beauty of it being study abroad programs. You can find that wherever you want to find it, whether it's in Asia, whether it's in Europe, whether it's in Africa. Like, 
you can find it anywhere because most universities will offer some kind of exchange, some kind of, if it's Tokyo you want to go to, we have good friends whose daughter is in Japan right now for, she's there for a year, right? Which I love, like I love, I love seeing pictures when they dropped her off. I love seeing sort of this new experience she was about to have. So my advice would be to do the research based on what you personally are looking for and also your personality, your personality type, right? I'm super outgoing. I'll go sit at an outdoor cafe in, you know, Paris by myself, make about 15 friends before I've finished lunch and keep it pushing and then go to the Louvre by myself and be totally fine. I'm a, that's my personality type. For someone else, that might be a more daunting. So they may want to be part of um, a study abroad, abroad program that isn't in a major city like that, that is more on the in the countryside like the Loire Valley can feel, um, that is more of a bigger group of students traveling together for that program and less of, oh, it's five of us. It just really depends. But the beauty of the study abroad programs is there's something for everyone. Love that. Before I get into... Last question, a TV question, because we can't let you get out of here without talking about found. Give everybody 30 seconds on the difference between international baccalaureate and the normal, you know, diploma that is we, in America we get when we graduate high school. What's the difference? Really quick. So for um, in the international baccalaureate program, you actually it's sort of almost think about it as if it's in between um, the style of the traditional American diploma and then the sort of dip European diplomas, whether it's your A-levels in the UK or whether it is um, the uh, diplomas you get in France. And so in the UK, you narrow down to three subjects for your last two years of high school, essentially. Um, and the idea being those three subjects, your A-levels that you're narrowing down to, one of those is what you're going into college to study. It is part of the reason why British universities are usually three years, because you go in knowing what your focus is going to be because you've already narrowed down to it for two years um, versus the traditional America system that, you know, yes, you're taking AP classes um, if if you want, um, but there is more of a uh, variety to the number of subject matter classes you're taking and uh, would argue it's more of a um, general high school diploma than a narrowed down sort of specific expertise or focus diploma. The IB, the International Baccalaureate, is bang in the middle of those two. So you have six subjects. You do three at sort of what I used to say the A-level standard, which is probably the equivalent of our AP classes. So those are your higher level subjects. You do three lower level subjects, which are usually more in the vein of your traditional high school class, but you've narrowed down your subjects. So you have six subjects, three at higher level, three at lower level, and then you have theory of knowledge, which is sort of a more broad psychological aspect to the degree where it is, I, I sort of saw it as like sort of college, freshman year of college level psychology, right? And it's, it's um, you explore these themes around knowledge and psychology and have to write an essay at the end of the two years. And um, you graduate and you get to your diploma, um, it's a two-year program. At the end of the two years, you take your IB test. And so if you fail it, you start over. Um, and if you pass it, you get your uh, IB. And so for me, I loved it because I just, I also was very clear on sort of what my focus was. 
um, which had always sort of been economic. My dog has feelings on that, which had always been sort of economics, um, science focus. I know I'm a writer, it's, but the economics part of my brain was very active even back then, hence why 14 years in the Federal Reserve. And so it, but it was the best, truly the best two years. Um, and so I've been a big proponent of it because I think I personally, and this is my personal belief, education is not my field of expertise. It is yours. But I personally believe it better prepares kids for college um, in a way that I don't think I necessarily would have been had I had more of a traditional sort of American high school experience. And again, that's just my personal experience. It is also part of the reason why I graduated in three years when I went to college without realizing it because I went in focused on what I wanted to do. Essay writing was, oh my gosh, you write so many essays. It's part of the IB that once I got to college and you had to write all these essays, I was like, oh, cool, been doing it for years. Um, and there wasn't a steeper learning curve of just transitioning sort of into the university style learning. And so I sort of looked up first semester of my junior year and realized, oh, if I add an extra credit each of these semesters, I can have enough credits to graduate at the end of my junior year. And so that's what I did. Perfect. So now we understand that if you have an opportunity and there are a growing number of schools um, that are offering the international baccalaureate in the United States, certainly here in California, definitely something to look into because, again, it can be that value add that shortens the amount of time you spend uh, in undergrad. So thank you for that. Now, on to found. This is your new show. It's on NBC, your first time, your first show that you created from the idea in your brain to on the screen. You get the created by credit. It's on big network TV. Congratulations. That is a milestone, certainly in our household. You have, you know, created characters now in multiple shows, you know, most notably, you know, Spencer James, all American. Um, we have female tennis player, shout out Jeffrey Maya and all American homecoming. So now you have talked about interviews. When you do these shows, there's often a letter to the community that you want them to understand something about the community, a slice of life, right? So now we have Gabby Mosley being played by, I mean, what is sure to become a star in Shinola Hampton. She already was, was shameless, but I think this is gonna take her to the new level. What is it that you hope the audience takes away as we get to know these characters um, in Found and this relationship between um, Shinola's character and you know America's favorite, um, you know, cool kid in high school, Zach Morris, Mark Paul Gosselaar playing a way different character. What, what do we, what do we, what are you hoping, what is your goal um, for the audience to take away? Yeah. Um, I mean, technically it's the um, second show I've created, but first one outside of the all American universe. And so, um, but thank you for the right. correction. <laughs> you, you always make me acknowledge it. So I'm like, okay, no, you're right. I have to acknowledge it the full length. So yes. Um, third show, I'm excuse show writing, second show I've created, but, but found is the first show outside of the all American universe. Um, and, um, similarly to, um, my other two shows, you know, with found, I'm trying to push the audience while entertaining them, um, hopefully entertaining them very well that they must tune in every week, um, is also drawing their attention to an issue that's prevalent in our community that hopefully makes the world a little bit better if they understand it and therefore contribute to the solution. And for our found, that 
subject matter in particular is the disparity with which we report and look for missing people. Um, there are a lot of communities that are underrepresented in how we report their um, cases in the media and how we categorize their cases, which can determine whether they get an Amber Alert or not. If someone is considered a runaway, there is no Amber Alert issue. Disproportionately, Black and brown youth are considered runaways when they go missing, which means there's no Amber Alert. And that puts them at a disadvantage because extra eyes are not looking for them. Um, extra information about them isn't being put out there. And it is an assumption that they are a runaway as opposed to fact. And that assumption, that internal bias has real life consequences. Because when someone goes missing, everyone knows, not just because we've all watched every procedural under the sun, but because it is repeated frequently on the news that the first 48 hours are the most important. And so this show focuses on what happens when you have a group of people who've decided to come together, use their previous personalized trauma with being missing people or having missing loved ones to turn that into power and fill in the gap where they feel the absence is so that they can forgot they can focus on finding what they call the forgotten ones, which are people who have, for whatever reason, been deemed disposable by society and therefore are not being looked for as aggressively. That is anything from our black and brown members of the community, indigenous missing people. We know what is happening with indigenous women right now and how badly that is being underreported. It is crazy. Exactly. It's the LGBTQ plus community. It is um, certain fields, sex workers. Mm -hmm. Because of a certain profession choice does not mean you are therefore disposable. It does not mean that when you disappear or harm comes to you that there shouldn't be justice. Um, and so um, same with addicts, same with all these things. So this these groups of people who have slipped through the cracks for whatever reason, it isn't a blame game. There are systemic issues that have contributed to this. Gabby and her team fill in that gap. And they, by any means necessary, will do what it takes to try and find that person and return them to their family. Now, Gabby's definition of by any means necessary <laughs> um, might be a little different from the average person's, but the other aspect of the show and specifically Gabby's relationship with Sir, who was her kidnapper when she was 16, and spoiler alert if you have not watched the first episode, which is up on Peacock right now, so go see it. Um, she has found, since her kidnapping, in the last seven months, she's found him and she is now holding him hostage in her basement and using him as a resource because she cannot think like these monsters who are taking these people, but he does. And so if working with him, and I use the term working, I, I use loosely. It, it loosely, exactly. I put that in quotes, um, means that she can expedite finding them and bringing them home sooner and close that 48 hour gap then she's willing to do it. Some would argue that's insane. And that is absolutely what it should feel like. We are rooting for her to heal. We are not rooting for her to keep a man in her basement. But she's our hero. We saw her survival story from when she was a teen and she's now this grown woman. And quite frankly, her and her whole team are a study in when healing goes right and when healing goes wrong. And in Gabby's case, the healing went wrong. The healing did not take. There is still healing to do. And so, like Tyra said all those years ago, very eloquently, we're rooting for you. <laughs> it's like we were rooting for you. And then we went downstairs and why? Why is the white man in your basement, Gabby? We were all rooting for you. 
I mean, we still are. And with each episode, I think what people will find is they're rooting more and more for her healing. And that comes from each case. And so as they make their way through their cases and they all continue to heal and Gabby gets whole one case at a time, she too is going to start to look herself in the mirror and be like, what have you done? But how do you undo a decision that day? These are the mysteries of found. And these are the mysteries that will keep people watching. I know I will be. I know NBC is going to keep um, making sure we know when found is coming. Um, so I... Marketing and promo team and everything. I mean, they could run a master class in how to promo the show. We have certainly been feeling the love and, and we appreciate all the, the notices of where the billboards are and people taking pictures with the billboards and sending them along. So I appreciate you taking the time before bedtime for certain people. Uh, certainly Ringo, uh, you know, wants his quality time. So I'm going to let you go on that. You know, no, no care time for Ringo. Well, he definitely made his presence known. So found All-American. All-American Homecoming, you know, keep us fed, keep a roof over our head. Thank you for all that you do and all that uh, you provide and bring to the industry because, you know, in these times where it is tenuous, you have helped to make sure that it continues to run in a way that creatives would like to see it run. So thank you for your time. In Keichi Okoro Carol, we will talk to you again soon because, again, it's not that hard to find you. Um, <laughs> And hopefully you will be willing to come back to take notes with your husband. Listen, anytime. I, I tell you all the time, I'm riding your coattails into heaven. What you're doing in the education space is unbelievable and so desperately needed and vastly important. And so the same way you champion my career as a writer and a creator, I continue to champion yours as an educator because you have blessed this world in an incredible way and our next generations in an incredible way and continue to do so. So. Whenever you need me on taking notes with Dr. John Carroll, I will be here, honey. I'm going to hold you to that. All righty. We will see you soon. Thank you so much. Bye. The Dean's Office makes a return this week. I would like to see Mr. Kyle Farnbury. Kyle Farnbury is the president of Guilford College in North Carolina. He found himself in hot water this week after students on his campus found using the N-word and making monkey noises at a soccer game against Virginia State University, proud HBCU. And the reason I'd love to talk to Mr. Farnbury is for him to understand that while it is a step in the right direction for him to make a public statement and apologize for the student's behavior, it is a far more conciliatory and restorative action for him to either apologize himself to the student athletes involved from Virginia State or have the students who he found to make these comments apologize to those student athletes. Because if you do not have that recognition and affirmation that those students were wrong, almost make it as if soccer players, by their very existence, just trying to play a soccer game on the pitch, cause this incident. If you do nothing, the fairness had an
Expressed by John Carroll and his guest in the preceding podcast are solely that of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the views of their employers, companies, or other associated parties.